You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. So I'm not going to do long formal introductions. You can uh, tell us a bit more about yourselves. But uh, as many of you will know, Sean Moore has been with us now for three, almost three months. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, we're delighted to have him as a visiting research fellow working on a subject with huge amounts of intrigue. So I'm looking forward to hearing about it. And to welcome back to the hub my distinguished colleague, Aileen Douglas, who is our Chair of 18th Century Literature in the School of English, uh, and uh, has been working a little bit in a crossover area with Sean, and is going to lead the conversation. So I'll hand over to both of you with thanks. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks very much, Eve. Um, so, uh, delighted to be uh, here. I think I might just leave this, if that's okay. Um, brilliant, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, good afternoon everyone, delighted to be here uh, with Sean. Um, Sean's a, a visiting fellow in the hub, but he has a long history in visiting uh, Trinity, starting when you were an undergraduate, and then you came back as a Fulbright scholar, and now here you are again. <laughs> so lots of experience there. But as Eve mentioned, um, you know, you're here working on a project on the Secret Service and the British, Irish and Scottish uh, book trades of the mid 17th to early 19th century. So maybe, could you tell us, Sean, a little bit about how the Secret Service, as you term it, worked during that period and maybe some of the writers um, that you're dealing with or that, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, thank you, Eileen, first of all, for sponsoring me here. And uh, Eileen was also, uh, I audited a seminar of hers and uh, was a Fulbright scholar in 2001 to 2002, and that's how we got to know each other over the years. Um, <clears throat> this project evolved from a paper I gave in 2014 at the Swift Symposium uh, at, at, uh, at St. Patrick's Cathedral. I had noticed in, in some people's works, like uh, W.J. McCormick or Bill McCormick, um, and, and also in James Woolley's work, citation of a particular Secret Service ledger uh, in Marsh's uh, uh, library at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And, um, and I noticed a number of payments to newspapers. Uh, mm. Also, uh, a poet uh, received a large sum at the time of 30 pounds for an ode on, his, on the Prince of Wales' birthday. Uh, I saw also in the Secret Service ledger um, that was just kept by a secretary at Dublin Castle, who's, uh, I'll go into a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But um, I said, well, this is interesting. This is, there was an assassination in there, just one in, in that particular ledger for that year, 1722 to 23. <laughs> <laughs> this one for. for I said it was like, uh, you know, 16, no, 14 pounds for the death of Sir Charles Fielding in the park the other day, as ordered by Lord Shannon and Conley. So I assumed like, okay, that was something like that. I noticed uh, you got more for an ode than twice as much, <laughs> in fact, yeah, uh, than yeah. you do for an assassination. Is that Yeah, yeah, this is something I've been figuring out. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, the, a the leadership of a lot, you know, the, the, of, 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 the, of, these kind of these kinds of organizations. It's, it's medium. It's propaganda that gets mm -hmm. that gets these these kinds of large payments. So um, you know the project evolved out out of that paper I gave. I was too busy working on another book at the time, Slavery in the Making of Early American Libraries from Oxford, which we'll talk about a little bit. I gather, mm -hmm. um, and um, the the the. Um, uh, and so I put I, I had tabled that, and then I began to look into more Secret Service ledgers, and um, and other reading. We know that after then, there's a book uh, published mm -hmm. by Janet Todd um, by Rutgers University Press. On Alfred Ben, uh, the first, as Virginia Woolf said, the first woman to make her, uh, a living by her pen. 
Um, it turns out the living was mostly Secret Service payments, <laughs> and she was able to to um, get that partly for spying on the Dutch. It was one of the things that she did, uh, but also I think for several for publications. I saw also that the Folger Shakespeare Library, uh, when I was doing my research, has uh, her and Dryden uh, has a document, another ledger, Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, of uh, payments to Afriban uh, and John Dryden, who was poet laureate after all. Yeah. So that was one of the ways he was able to to you know be paid. Um, I didn't see a lot of payments to writers from other aspects of treasury categories of treasury funds. Okay. So uh, this is this is something a bespoke kind of fund that's used used for this kind of things. I mean, they didn't have like a, a transparent IRC, IRC Research Council, or a National Endowment for the Humanities mm -hmm. in the U.S. to to, to sponsor um, writers and, and even scholarship. Um, I've also uh, seen uh, that Swift was an opponent of this. Mm -hmm. This is kind of interesting because I find myself revisiting my earlier book, my first book on mm -hmm. Swift. Um, and you know, looking at his Irish writings, is that he was very critical of Sir Robert Walpole, mm -hmm. uh, the Prime Minister in the 1720s, who was bothering Ireland a lot, using Secret Service funds to, to fund what he called Grub Street uh, writing, oh. which was you know, often smutty stuff, often inferior work mm -hmm. uh, to what he and, and Pope and uh, their dramatist friend John Gay were capable of doing. And as I think I, I said in my paper that I gave a couple weeks ago, um, I, I also discovered um, Jane Austen was probably a critic of this kind of thing and an ally of the Irish. She names William Wickham in Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Wickham, the character in Pride and Prejudice, is a military officer who seems to have a gambling problem like James Bond. <laughs> you know, and he, he also is a, is a kind of a kidnapper of other people's children and, 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 and taking Lydia off to Gretna Green to marry her in the, in the Bennett family. And so it turns out William Wickham was chief secretary for Ireland. Uh, okay. He interfered with the, with the 1798 rising. He also uh, was the chief person behind uh, the arrest of Robert Emmett in 1803. So your scope is quite wide then. You're going you know, all the way from Afrobain up to Jane Austen in terms of um, and different relationships that writers might have to, to this. Um, I suppose, you know, can I just ask about the ledger in Marsh's library, yeah. which you've referred to as the Secret Service ledger? Yeah. Um, I presume that's not what it's called. On the <laughs> no, how, it's what, just, how does it present itself? Um, it's just it's just a Secret Service money, um, uh, seventeen twenty-two, uh, okay. at, um, at, and at the, the accounts are kept by a man named James Belcher. Okay. Um, and he was uh, also uh, by a guy named Maddox. Both of these men were also in something called the Guild of St. Luke's. Uh, Mary okay, Pollard's list of that mm -hmm. shows that, that they were in the Printer's Guild. It's a weird kind of guild, or like labor union almost, but really more of a guild of, of painters, uh, stainers, um, uh, like surgeons, and, and uh, printers. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, there's this kind of a private sector kind of organization that, you know, through Adrian Johns and other people worked on the history of the book, was, had certain kinds of Masonic oaths that mm -hmm. they had to take to mm -hmm. be in it and things like that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's become clear to me is that um, uh, Masons are also um, the recruiting ground for intelligence organizations. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a kind of like, it's almost like a privatized, a very English kind of thing, like Anglo-American neoliberal privatized form of both production and censorship, you know, that, that you had to obey these rules. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there, there were a lot of them. But yeah, it's just nakedly called that. And I also found a ledger, um, 1712 to 14, in the Marshes, 
earlier, about a, a decade or two earlier, that was called just a Secret Service money, 1713. Mm, yeah. So they just kind of, it's, it's like, it's like, an account, it, like when these survived, you know, they were just keeping them in Dublin Castle right. and they're scattered around. And, and, you know, some of them are here, a lot of them are in uh, Oxford and Cambridge, frankly, and a lot of them are in Edinburgh. Okay. So, I mean, just kind of uh, thinking about these archives and so on, I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about your monographs, um, the work on Swift and the one on slavery, is the way you combine, you know, this really patient, close work with archival materials and kind of theoretical and critical perspectives. Um, as a, whoops, my prompts there. So, just as a, as a, as a scholar and as a researcher, um, c can you just tell us a little bit about your experience of working with the archives? Because you know, it, it, it's, it's a very particular kind of work and I imagine, you know, a lot of the materials you deal with are quite granular and they don't sort of signal yeah. very powerfully perhaps their interest. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you approach your work in the archive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I realized during my, my Swift project, uh, the first book, Swift the Book of the Irish Financial Revolution, which uh, ended up getting a Murphy Prize for Distinguished First Book from the American mm -hmm. Conservatory Studies, published out with Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University Press in 2010. I, I was doing some archival work up at Crony, mm. uh, uh, looking into different correspondences related to, the, to um, people in power during the time Swift was writing. Uh, and so, you know, that definitely made it in there. But really, with the slavery book, it was a combination of priorities that merged the archival work with theoretical concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a move away from theory announced in 2007 in PMLA saying that postcolonial theory is over, which I, I had kind of debunked by saying, well, actually, one of the journal editor postcolonial articles, you never stopped being the most popular ones, frankly. But I, what I do is called postcolonial book history, looking at both Ireland and the U.S. I, uh, I approached the archival element uh, with a slavery book because I had two children who were under five years old at that time and I realized I would really have to work in New England archives mostly for that. And I Sorry, in the what archives? In, in, New, in New England, England yeah. like in yeah. Boston and you know, yeah. down the East Coast. And um, you know, just so I could get, get home to help take care of them. But um, the, the, um, what happens in the grant application, I got a couple NEHs for the slavery, slavery book, was that um, the archival element was not, I knew what archives I needed to look into. Mm, mm. And I wanted to see if I could merge the fields of book history, transatlantic book history that James Rabin helped found uh, at Cambridge, and, um, and also post-colonial theory and Atlantic studies. And I said, well, you know, let's see if, the, if, money, if this money from slavery was paying for um, the book trade. And I, I found a way of doing that. Um, one of the interesting things, for instance, is I thought I would write a chapter about Benjamin Franklin's library that was founded in 1731, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, and he, had, he was one of the people who had tried to pirate an edition of Pamela by Richardson mm -hmm. in, in 1741. Um, and it wasn't successful because the paper that he was using uh, imported into America was too expensive and couldn't compete with the actual London imprint that was being imported. Uh, but a chapter was going to be about that, but what I discovered is, was far more fascinating when I got a fellowship in the Library Company in Philadelphia is that um, that's not the story there. And mm -hmm. so what I wanted to say is something interesting. It turns out a lot of Equiano 
was reading someone named uh, Anthony Benese, who was a borrower at the library, who was producing accounts of Africa. Mm -hmm. It filled in a gap, for instance, um, with uh, Vin Caretta, who mm -hmm. had written about a lot of Equiano and Proof, but actually Equiano, his slave narrative about being born in Africa, he was not born in Africa. His mm -hmm. baptismal certificate is in South Carolina in the US. And so I said, well, this is interesting. And so Equiano's version of his childhood and being like attacked by you know um, slave traders was fabricated from Anthony Benezet's reading at the Library mm -hmm. Company of Philadelphia and, and writing about what, what African civilization was like. And Benezet also never happened to Africa. <laughs> so, you know, um, so merging the archival stuff, I, this is why I came up with a term uh, called just post-colonial book history. You know, the, the idea that you can, you can be an archival person, but also interested in race. For many decades, um, I've heard from people, including, you know, I think I've swayed the current editor I passed along to of 18th century studies, Ramesh Malapetti, um, that the archive was said not to say anything about people of color, that there was mm. no evidence in the archive, and, you know, theory was rarely where it was at. And so you can do these things, and there was, there was kind of a gap that needed to be filled there. Okay. So the idea that you can approach the issues of slavery and race and gender um, from a post-colonial point of view by going to archival materials that tell you a lot more. The story of the oppressed is in there. Yeah. So thinking about um, that monograph you've been talking about, um, slavery and the early American library, um, I mean, in, in that book, you talk about the libraries as being um, slavery-created reading spaces. Um, I think that's maybe one of the most important of your contentions yes. um, in the book. So, so can you say um, what you mean by that term, um, how it functions, you know, for people yeah. who maybe aren't, yeah. you know, familiar? Well, the, 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 the easiest segue is to talk about all these studies we're now doing about, um, you know, say, Barclay's connection uh, to, to, to slavery. Um, I found out actually, in, I did a chapter where I mentioned that he was living in Newport, Rhode Island for three years and owned slaves on a farm there. He had raised some money to start a college in Bermuda for the training of Native American children, uh, Native American boys, to kind of be brainwashed uh, into being missionaries to go back to their people as a mm -hmm. kind of cultural imperialism agenda. But he said, oh, you know what, I'll just take the money and buy a slave plantation in Rhode Island. <laughs> and, um, and so there was a pre-existing literature on that from Craig mm -hmm. Wilder, who had published Ebony and Ivy about the history of the Ivy League in connection to slavery. The idea that the, the endowments were built up. You know, Harvard actively recruited the sons of slave traders uh, to be their students. Also, the fathers of uh, these students, the, the slave traders themselves, to be on the board of Harvard. Mm -hmm. And um, the, idea, the idea of that was, um, uh, was uh, that's where a capital was coming from. Mm -hmm. To start what has been critiqued for many years now by Slavoj Žižek, um, in first his tragedy and then as far as, uh, who's citing Oscar Wilde's soul down or socialism, as you know. Uh, the charitable industrial complex. The idea that particularly in America uh, and with, uh, with the American right and some of the British right, privatization, you know, everything must be a charitable thing and not a public good, not paid for by any kind of taxpayer um, mm. funding. And so you know, the idea that we have what we now call neoliberal 
means of funding things was coming from enslavement, which is also kind of an accusation about the present in kind of Anglo-American economics and then political economy. You know, this idea that you can like have you know, ch you know charity pay for everything. And in truth, these billionaires don't really donate that much. So you know, that was kind of what I was getting at. Slavery created reading spaces. The Redwood Library, for instance, that land was donated by um, uh, by by someone who's involved in the slave trade. Abraham Redwood ponied up 500 pounds sterling in coin to buy the books for the Redwood Library. Mm -hmm. And you had to have a subscription um, that made it kind of an exclusive uh, organization to, to join, uh, like annual subscriptions. At, say at the Charleston Library Society, 50 pounds a year, a which would be like like, yeah. a, like a million dollar like golf club membership fee almost. Like we had to like say this in talks. These are like golf clubs, you know, like elite gathering places. You have to have a lot of money to be there. So the spaces of reading, the, the, the edifices themselves also paid for by slave trade money. People trading slaves, uh, the triangular trades we used to call it, it's much more complex than that when you look at the actual documents, like you know, octagonal trades. But um, you know, uh, sl slavery's picked up, uh, slaves picked up in West Africa, brought to the Caribbean and South America, and, um, and, uh, and in exchange for often sugar and molasses that would be brought north, even to New England, to uh, distill rum in Boston, uh, in New York, and everywhere. Um, and that, that rum would be then sent to trade for more slaves in Africa. So people in shipbuilding prospered. Mm -hmm. Shipbuilders were among the people, like some of the more prosperous people. Um, you know, in a Salem Social Library north of Boston, you know, um, you know, I think three quarters of the subscribers you had to like, you know, have have this membership fee were all Harvard graduates. Mm -hmm. and so that's how it starts. Even a doctor who was the son of the president of Harvard, Augustus Holyoke, would insure slave cargoes and, and make money that way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these are slavery created libraries that are also kind of like chambers of, uh, of commerce and frankly Masonic lodges. Mm -hmm. And some women could be, be members of this, but usually by inheriting their father's share in a library okay. and subscription. Yeah. Okay, great. So, I mean, this idea of, of uh, consumerism that's um, funded by slavery essentially um, is a model you could probably apply to quite a number of patterns in the 18th century uh, and into the early 19th century but you talk in your book I mean the library is, is a kind of complicated example isn't it because on the one hand it's funded by slavery and yet some of the works that are being borrowed and read are are countering you know yes. they're actually I mean you talk about yes. the links with abolition I mean yeah. how, how does yeah. can you say how you kind of not square that circle because I don't think it can be squared but yeah. how do you negotiate that in your, in your well novel? well you know the chapter I went into uh, in that slavery book was um, Orinoco by Afriban initially adapted into the play by Thomas Southern and turned into a more abolitionist play in 1759 or 60 um, by Hawksworth. And, and, and it's explicitly using the movement of sentimentality and said, like, let's, sentimentality can help generate idea of human rights in people, like the, these suffering people. Orinoco was a slave who was a prince in Africa. And um, this is the story after Ben tells. He was brought, to, he was captured and brought uh, to uh, Suriname. He treated as a kind of pet, so a kind of like, um, uh, uh, somebody who was a higher class slave who spoke English and, other, uh, and French and other languages because his, his, uh, his father had demanded that 
uh, educated in that way. And so you know, he ends up leaving a slave rebellion and, and being basically, literally crucified. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and, and he's supposed to be, you know, this is what, what happens to good Christians uh, in a way, is, is that they rise up against these kinds of systems. And so um, uh, in, in, in Orinoco you see um, the, the play by Faulkner makes it in the hands of a son of one of the one of the uh, owners, the subscribers to the to the Salem Social Library, and um, the son uh, becomes an abolitionist through the cause. He doesn't get involved in his father's business, but you know the sentimentality movement <clears throat> was not only fueling various ideas of liberation at the time. I mean, there are problems with sentimentality. Don't get me wrong. Uh, can make him you know merge over the smut if you're not careful. Uh, and some of these people were like suddenly they were reading like these kinds of things, and suddenly you'd see them reading a romance novel as well. But um, the, the uh, but yeah, the, these places had abolitionist works, um, particularly the Library Company of Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, that was becoming um, a, a very abolitionist city by the mid to late eighteenth century. Anthony Benizé, aforementioned as an influence on um, on Olada Equiano. Um, was leading um, uh, anti-slavery and abolitionist movements. Uh, there were other kinds of people that were abstemious, um, uh, other kinds of Quakers who said, well, if we consume anything from the slave trade, like sugar and any, anything like that, rum, um, you know, we're participating, uh, our consumer habits. So early kind of boycotting kind of attitudes. So we're coming out of Swift as well, right? Swift was saying we, we should boycott that. Swift, you know, I did an article for this for the Early American Literature Journal. Uh, you know, Swift was, was making a big impact on people's thinking about how you engage in a kind of civil disobedience in, in, in this sense and um, uh, a, a kind of passive resistance as you different kinds of boycotting things. So there are a lot of works on anti-slavery also being stocked, but you know, not by everybody. Like Charleston, mm -hmm. Charleston, South Carolina's library, you know, that was a, they were just importing so many slaves, many of whom would die within a few months of working mm -hmm. on a plantation in that hot weather. And so, you know, a lot of them stayed away from that. In fact, the performance of Orinoco, uh, there was one advertised uh, in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Um, and I believe from what, what uh, Elizabeth Maddock Dillon said, studying this, uh, it, it was never performed. Okay. You know, it, was, it would have been too shaming for the centerpiece of the economy. And the argument is that, well, you know, in 1772, when the Somerset case was banning slavery on English soil, as we saw in the film Bell, many of you may have seen that, um, you know, that, that um, uh, it, it, it was so, going to be so damaging to the American economy that that really sparked the war of independence more than any other cause. It's like Britain, the British Isles are moving in an anti-slavery direction. And, uh, and uh, if you can't be a slave on English soil, in America is also English soil. You know, that would threaten the economy. So, you know, and they're also getting their political ideas of independence from these libraries as well. And so the book trade, you know, was facilitating this. So it's ironic, even ideas of abolition, even ideas of, um, of having a breakaway from an empire are being fueled uh, by, um, you know, a consumer culture that has slavery as its, as its uh, financial base. Um. So you mentioned Swift there um, a few minutes ago in the context of, I suppose, the Drapier's letters and the sort of ideas of boycotting uh, coin um, and, and you know, kind of mass, mass well, is it mass movement? <laughs> a large movement of people um, sort of prompted by 
um, by his, his writings uh, to, to resist the imposition of Woods Havens. Um, so you, you sort of not quite began your career with Swift, but your first monograph uh, was on Jonathan Swift and the Irish book trade. Um, and I know you're interested in Swift in this new project in terms of the Secret Service and his reactions to it. Um, where do you think Swift sort of stands now? Obviously, we have a kind of proprietorial interest in Swift here um, uh, in this particular location. Um, but, but you can say anything you like. Where do you think um, Swift well, kind of stands in um, 18th century studies now? You know, I've been thinking about this. How do I like, revisit my work of my first book yeah. um, and, and say, oh, my God, all kind of manuscripts I read then that I still have uh, in my dissertation, you know, um, you know, can be re revisited in all the ways he speaks about things, can be revisited. Uh, metaphors like cannibals, like I'm giving a paper, like, mm. you know, I never thought about this and when I was first writing. I like, did a PMLA article on a modest proposal mm. by Swift where cannibalism refers to eating the children of future generations to pay for the debts of today, you know, deferring it. Uh, and cannibals rarely for, for in, in Anglo-Irish Protestant or Sunday discourse at the time were people who believed in transubstantiation. You know, it was a, it was a joke amongst them. If you if you believe that the Eucharistic communion wafer is is um, is, is is the real presence of, of, of Christ's body, then you know the accusation is that you're a cannibal. And so Swift was was mm -hmm. playing with that a lot. So I've, re I've learned from reading some of this stuff that this is kind of a jargon. That some of the, some of the secret were using to describe the Catholics of, the, of this country, but when it comes to Swift studies, I don't think um, I could position a monograph just on Swift right now. Single author studies have fallen out of fashion, mm -hmm. and we've seen this in a lot of conferences, like the American Conference for Irish Studies. Um, there still is a Swift panel. I'll be speaking on that in, the, in, mm -hmm. in, in, in March in Toronto, <clears throat> but um, that's the only one really. I'm not mm -hmm. seeing like an Afro-Ben panel. Um, there was a controversy uh, year, uh, five years ago about a Richardson panel, like uh, there, there was just one Richardson panel or you know, something like that. But I just noticed that, that in the profession, it would be hard, for, for instance, to get hired if you just do a single author sure. work, at least in the American Academy. Mm -hmm. So Swift Studies, I think it is so relevant now to, to the kinds of stuff that we're seeing. I'm writing really what's driving my project about <coughs> news and media and even some, to some extent scholarship uh, in the 18th century being produced uh, by Secret Service money uh, is uh, our news culture transatlantically, the fake news that we're getting. It's, it's kind of an MI operation, it's a military intelligence operation. Um, you know, I, I learned this, my, my, my uncle was a, an editor at the Washington Post, I never thought of this, he was a quiet man of <laughs> some sort. But he's a veteran, they got the Bronze Star in the Battle of Balls and all that kind of thing too. But, um, but that um, the way that fake news was produced to produce Boris Johnson, to produce Donald, Donald Trump, um, it seems to be uh, some alliance between this kind of whitest and, and, and media and a free ride for them. And so, you know, um, this, this kind of, I think what, what I'm saying is, is Swift noticed this in the media himself. He was familiar with it. He was getting paid to write um, uh, uh, you know, any number of works. The Examiner newspaper in, from the 1710 to 14 administration, working for an anti-capitalist, but also right-wing Tory party at the time, 
you know, uh, Oxford and Bolingbroke were, were, were a government then, and, um, and he was getting paid the South Sea stock for that. I haven't seen him taking Secret Service money, but through that, I mean, he was a real critic of Defoe, who was taking Secret Service money to set up uh, the 1707 um, uh, active unit with Scotland. He went up in 1706 to set up a spy network to influence the members of Parliament there and the media locally to make sure that active unit got passed because you know uh, people wanted that and wanted. So uh, Swift was critical of, Swift, uh, of Secret Service funds. I think that's where his Irishness comes in a lot. I mean, was he as much of an anti-Catholic bigot as Claude Ross and his man not to be from Yale? Or really, is he what I call Cardinal Hilary, the Catholic population celebrating him in the 1730s as, as somebody who um, was welcomed to, by them and, and, and uh, a hero to them as well? I, ecumenically speaking, I think, I think he, was, uh, he was working ecumenically in the 1720s and 30s and 40s, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think he had a, a bit of a not a chip on his shoulder, but maybe a little bit of insecurity too about being paid for his writing and, you know, had a famous kind of bust up with Bolingbroke where he was, you know, very offended at the notion that he would actually, actually be paid. Um, but, but moving from Swift, I mean, you were talking just there about the way the profession has, has changed and, and, is, and is evolving and for several years, you were the editor of the um, American Journal for 18th Century Studies, which is probably the most important 18th century journal globally. It's um, produced by the American Society, so uh, very prominent. Um, uh, and obviously, that job gave you a kind of <laughs> a very clear sense of you know, what people were working on, what they mm -hmm. were producing, the kinds of articles that people were submitting to, mm -hmm. to journals. Um, it, it's, it's a kind of, uh, let's say, an interesting time for academic publishing. I mean, there are a lot of challenges, um, opportunities with open access on the one hand, and now we have AI on the other. And yeah. uh, um, I mean, do you, would you like to reflect a little bit on your work as a as an editor of the scholarly well, this journal. Is, this is this is an, is an example of how I've been able in different roles like that to turn things around. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, what was happening is the journal Eighteenth Century Studies was at Yale, edited by uh, my friend and colleague Stephen Pinkus, mm -hmm. um, and um, it was not uh, generating. At, he was printing fewer and fewer. As I'm now seeing with the new management of of uh, protege of mine, Ramesh Malapetti at UBC. He, it, it, it was not producing really a lot of full-length essays. He was down to like publishing three in the journal, maybe some book reviews, some short interviews and things like that. And um, his managing editor went on down to Yale to pick up the materials. He told me that he was using a, a Yale-only uh, advisory board. He, he says, well, here's what's on the masthead. We have the five editorial board members and 20 members of the advisory board. And, uh, and then she said, what we have over here is what Steve really uses is only Yale editorial board members and only Yale advisory board members. So these, these are the kinds of folks that were, you know, frankly, nixing everything he tried to get by them, to, both in the first tier of peer review mm -hmm. and in the second. I'm like, oh my God, this is what, this is what, he's, what, what he was doing. It was kind of almost like a patron assistant for Stephen, for whatever reason he was doing that. And so, um, you know, uh, they, they, these, these are kind of folks, I mean, they make jokes. I think that they have like papal infallibility in peer review, <laughs> you know, and, and so I was like, well, you know, we've, we've got, this is the challenge. I've got to increase the number of articles. I attended more conferences. And the challenge was really also for ASEX um, to 
American Society for Atheists, etc., etc., who own the journal to rebuild the royalties. I mean, we lost yeah. with when Steve Pavitt, you know, five years of that. And not only that, um, um, book reviews. So, not well known, if you're downloading an article on a platform like JSTOR or Project News or any of them, um, there's a royalty that your library mm -hmm. pays them. And that is split between um, the, the printer, in our case, Johns Hopkins University Press, and the owner of the journal, the American Society for 18th Century Studies. And so, um, what I discovered th through, through the processes is that a book review is as valuable in the download as uh, uh, a journal article. So I moved, what I achieved in that time was moving from about three articles per issue um, to uh, eight uh, mm -hmm. during my term, and each issue needed to happen. I also uh, was getting, um, once you start doing that, uh, once people begin to see that, that uh, you're soliciting papers that are what people want to hear and hear you passing, people think, oh, I can get published in this mm -hmm. now. Wow, Sean's doing a great job. We can like that. We can submit to 18th century studies and not get rejected. It's great. It's some great stuff that has come through. Uh, you know, just one special issue a year helped. Steve was doing all special issues at one point, and that was reducing readership and clicks on on that. So that was a challenge. And um, also, I was able to publish on. Um, I met with the journals, and this is crucial for us to rebuild the journal. I met with the journals division um, director at Johns Hopkins, uh, Bill Breitner. And he said, oh, I can give you data on what's being downloaded. Mm -hmm. And no one really does this with journals who's an editor. I said, well, okay, in 2017, 18, and 19, let's see who's downloading. Top downloaders of 18th century studies were Toronto, Cambridge, and Oxford one year. And then uh, it was like a, uh, increased, uh, you know, the five top was also included in New York and Edinburgh. So this, this, this kind of challenge was something I was able to write about and say, well, this is what's going on. I was also using that data so like what types of articles. On JSTOR, women's studies articles and 18th century studies, going back to about 1990, were the five or six top you know, by, by women. And, and um, on Project News, uh, it was post-colonial articles by Ramash Malapetti and uh, Nicholas Hudson, things on post-colonialism and race. So that's what I was able to do, study our readership a little bit through clicks. Not particularly individuals, but you know, how many clicks and that kind of thing. So uh, I was able to do that. Yeah. Okay, great. So, so that brings me to my, my final question before I see if people would like to join in. Um, so, you know, when I think of your work, I think of a lot of different disciplinary headings, you know, mm -hmm. Irish studies, American studies, transatlantic studies. Um, you mentioned as you were speaking earlier, um, post-colonial book history. Is that your preferred, I mean, you know, if yeah. that's the one that, that yeah. does it for you now and that's the one you see defining your work or describing yeah. your work as you go forward? Yeah, it's the only term I can use. I think I coined that particular term, post-colonial book history, although there were pre-existing books from 10 or 20 years ago, Robert Fraser's Book History Through Colonial Eyes. Um, and the idea of a post-colonial book history is to deconstruct the cultural production uh, that uh, people were, were, were participating in, in writing and printing and, and the whole process of that, but also the readership. You know, what are, what are the readers reading at that time? And I did a study of borrowing records, for example, in, in the slavery book to say, like, well, what were they really interested in? And that was influenced, frankly, by me doing these kind of studies of journal downloads. Like, okay, we need to understand our readership a lot better. You can make it more concise now, obviously, with a lot of technology, but it can be kind of invasive. So, you know, the individuals reading the journal, I didn't care about. But slave traders, what were they reading? Let's, let's figure out what their tastes are. Were they into pornography, for example, things like that. So, you know, 
Um, I, I call it postcolonial book history because um, you know uh, it, it's just a, a term to say like you know the message in the 1990s with book history when I was at, at, at Duke University is we don't do book history. It's oppressive. Uh, it's white. Uh, it's empirical, and that's the message that book history was sending at that time. But by publishing something that's more about race mm. and gender and uh, the status of colonies, uh, uh, issues of slavery, we bring a post-colonial perspective to what was viewed for a while as an all-white field, particularly in the United States. So that's why I use the term. So, um, well, thank you very much. Um, it's been really... Um, enlightening um, and um, good to talk to you and um, I'm sure you'll be here if people want to just follow up and sure. have a sandwich. Yeah. I think there are some sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks very much. Thank you, everybody.